I uh, have thought about going and studying there myself. They have some short-term things there at Oxford, but um, it's nice to know that it's people knocking it down, thinking it through it. And what he was saying to you was, do not be deceived by pop culture and the things around you. Because if you were to climb into the ivory towers of the philosophical, the philosophy departments of some major academic institutions, you would find that there is a tipping back to the belief in God. Ralph, I think you said your philosophy major you were? I, there weren't probably as many people in philosophy as there were in business at CBU, was there? Right? Sort of a smaller group. You know, back in the early years of our world, philosophy was it. If you wanted to grow up and be somebody, you didn't pursue the whole thing of being maybe a doctor, a lawyer, a great entrepreneur or something like that. You went into philosophy and you studied about the significance and the meaning to life. But what we live in today is very much a pop culture, very existentialistic, which means, you know, you know, go you only go around once in life. So grab all the gusto you can experience experience. And somehow we've allowed the mind to become uh, neglected. That's why a lot of times when I listen to things of a philosophical nature, apologetic nature, a critical thing, I was like, man, my brain hurts, you know. And I heard one person say, well, that's what happens when you don't use your brain very often. You get calluses on it, right? I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, I need to think through this and think deeply. And I want you to know that we as a church is the awakening. There's a lot of things God is calling us to be awakened to. Awakened to Christ Himself. We're going to be looking at that again today. Awakened to His mission. But I believe one of the things He's calling us to be awakened to is a sharpening of our mind so that we cannot just go out there and defend Christianity or to be able to see those who are happy pagans come to know Christ. But because we were made to think deeply. We were made to think keenly. God bless my mom. She turned 84 yesterday. And she is reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And I'm like, really, Mom? She goes, yeah, it sort of makes my brain hurt sometimes. And I'm not quite sure. But I, I think that I have a model in my life here at the age of 84. She's trying to read through a C.S. Lewis book, rethinking through things. Because if you don't use it, they say you lose it, right? And sometimes I wonder about us as Christians. Are we really as sharp as we need to be with our minds? And so I think it's appropriate that we address something like the skeptical mind. Because you need to be able to give a defense at some level for your Christian faith. But if you're a skeptic this morning, and many of us have been and still are, whether it's with the faith or other kinds of things, we need to be able to engage the mind and not allow ourselves just to caught up in the euphoricness of, of feelings or perceptions or, or thinking that faith doesn't have any substance, rational base behind it. And so I always want to encourage us. We continue to move forward from week to week. And, and I'll be doing my best to be able to think through that as well. How do we become sharpened and awakened in our minds to know and love God? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And many times I catch myself wasting time when I could recapture that time Reading, thinking different, uh, deeply, maybe interacting, watching something. Because if you don't use it, sometimes you lose it. But if you don't use it, you definitely do not develop it. And the whole idea of being able to, to be able to address the skeptic minds, it takes a discipline to think through some things. Well, we're going to look at a conversation Jesus has today 
and the prologue, the front part of the Gospel of John. And this conversation is going to help us answer the question of where do you go with the big questions of life? Where do you go with the big questions of life? Now, John, some of you are familiar with it. I've even quoted it before. I'll quote it again. It starts out real simple. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came to being that has come into being. And it goes on and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory to the only begotten from the Father. Now, do you realize that the word, word, the English word, comes from the Greek word logos? And so you could say, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the Greek word for logos pointed back to what the Greeks believed was sort of the essence of nature. That there was a, 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 there's a rational, moral reason to life. And so your Greek philosophers spent a lot of times trying to learn and study what was the logos, the, the, the essence of nature, the rational, moral basis. How radical was it then for John to step in and say, this which you philosophers are looking for, the logos, the essence of all, is found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, they were going around trying to grab a hold of some uh, principle or some rational structure, construction of a system of this is what the essence of life, this is what it is. And so they would spout off different kinds of ambitious uh, thoughts and sayings and they would sit in big circles and they would sit in dialogue and debate and dialogue. And, and here, the Gospel of John is written and it starts out and says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos became flesh. What? Insanity! Pooey on you, right? Forget that! Get out of here! Well, John was spot on. He knew that where you go with the big questions of life is not to some academic rigors, but you go to a person. And the beauty of this is that there were a lot of people excluded from being able to understand the meaning of life because they were not perceived as heady, mindful people or the, the rigors of the studies. But you can have a relationship with a person. And in Christ, you will find the answer to your questions. So that's where we're going. Many times, I, I don't know if they still do it anymore. I'm always, I'm, I'm not anti-bumper stickers, but sometimes I'm like, oh, you know. It's like, Jesus is the answer. Well, whenever I see Jesus is the answer, I always go to the thing, well, if he is the answer, then he has to have a answer to your particular issue, your problem, or question in life. But if we as Christians proclaim that he is the answer, or if you're looking for the answer in your life this morning, I want to encourage you that it's in Christ. Now, open with me, if you would, to your scriptures in John 1, because right after that beginning of this, this grand beginning of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, it's immediately contextualized in the story and the interactions that Jesus had with the first disciples. And those first disciples um, were common fishermen, common people. 
which is always interesting to me. I, you know, we looked at it last week, some of the whole idea of Jesus dealing with the fishermen with Peter and John themselves. Do you realize that uh, in the Jewish rituals of the day, there were two particular professions that were extremely difficult um, to have and still be obedient to all the Jewish laws. One was a carpenter because carpenters also served as undertakers and they dealt with dead bodies. And fishermen were always separating sort of the clean and the unclean fish. And so a lot of the Jewish uh, rituals and laws about being cleanly uh, had to deal with those kinds of things. So how could they ever keep them, right? And so here Jesus, he goes after some of the common ordinary people of life and he begins calling them to come follow him. And they do. They take up that opportunity. Now, what you find in the New Testament is you do not find universities with philosophy departments. Okay, where are they at? What you find are teachers. And if you wanted to be a student and get a good degree, you would get yourself around that teacher. And you would follow that teacher, that rabbi. Well, one of the teachers that was sort of the edgy guy of the day was a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And so people started following John the Baptist around, and he had his own crowd. And as John the Baptist started realizing that the truth was coming on the scene, the answer in Jesus Christ, he began pointing them to him. And so you have here in John the story of uh, the followers that, that were hanging with John the Baptist, seeing John the Baptist point people to Jesus Christ. Verse 35 of chapter 1. The next day, Jesus, by the way, if you weren't here last week, I've chosen through this series to not go with the message slides, not go with a lot of nice, neat things because we're talking about stories, right? So if you're going to take your own notes, you can take your own notes on the blank note sheets in the back of your chairs, but you're going to have to uh, listen for them as we move through. I want you to be captured by the story, the encounter with Jesus, the conversation with Jesus. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. And he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him, they said, say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi. So there's one teacher sort of pointing to another teacher. If you really want to be a great student, I mean, you've learned some things with me, but here's the one that you need to really be following. Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him as about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah. This is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated as Peter. Now, isn't that interesting in light of last week's story at the very prologue, I mean, the uh, epilogue, and then you come back to the prologue. Here's Peter, front and center, and Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling him to himself. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Got the picture? He's walking. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Let me pause right there. Philip, he was excited. So he gets his friend Nathaniel engaged. 
And a lot of times, this is how the Christian faith passes from one person to another, right? I need to, need to get you in on something. I need to get you in on this teacher that I'm following. So he comes across Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, um, probably at the least, is an intellectual snob, and maybe at the worst, is he's a bigot. Nazareth? Can anything come out of Nazareth? All right, climb into the mindset of Nathaniel. He is a skeptic. He is a skeptic, and he begins by showing that he has prejudice. He has prejudice towards a group of people. You see, the people that lived in Jerusalem, they looked down on the people that lived around the Sea of Galilee. You know, you've got the right people. You've got the suitable people. You've got the smart people. And then you've got the other people. Nothing's changed in our culture, has it? They're from the wrong side of the tracks. You can name it. In fact, it only took me a few weeks to be around here and start to hear, oh, yeah, but you know, they live sort of there. What do you mean by that? Right? Yeah, maybe there's some socioeconomic conditions that are, but you know, and, and it wasn't a prejudice or a bigot statement, I guess, but you're like, why do we do the one upmanship? Uh, we're in this category, but they're in sort of that category. Now there's some others that are in this category. And so we're always trying to evaluate who's where and what's going on. And then the people that get looked down upon, what do they do? They turn around and they look on someone else to look down on, right? It's like the husband has a bad day at work. He comes home and starts to complain. He gives his wife a hard time. The wife gets up, so she turns around and gives the kids a hard time. Kid turns around and gives the dog a hard time. And eventually, the little girl kicks the cat. And the cat's going, what happened? <laughs> right? It's human nature to do this. Be careful. But what's tragic in this aspect of Nathaniel with a skeptic mind is he has a spirit that is dismissive. Dismissive of, uh, can anything come out of Nazareth? Well, when it comes to the Christian faith today, it's oftentimes that people look at Christianity like Nathaniel looked at Nazareth. Christianity. I was there, did that, went to church when I was little, and then I, then I worked my way through that, and I'm up here, up here now. Christianity, do you really believe that? You really believe that there is a God? You really believe uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead? Really? Really? And so what do we sheepishly do? We cower back down. We go, well, well, I believe it's, it's worked for me. And it's true, it's your testimony that you have. But do not shrink away. It's one of the reasons I showed the Oxford clip. Is that if you climb into the echelons of the ivory towers, there are people that are great thinkers that are trying to put it back all together, whether in philosophy or sociology, realizing the substance of God's existence is an enormous amount of material, and you think through it, and that even Jesus and his resurrection, that there is credible reason to believe into it. So don't shrink away. Don't let people dismiss you. And please, do not be dismissive others. And if you're a non-Christian today or someone who's never crossed the line of faith, do not be, do not be dismissive of Christianity. You know, they say in um, counseling that um, there is uh, one thing that will kill a marriage. Marriages, broken marriage, can survive disappointment, disagreement, pain, 
frustration. But if the person becomes dismissive of the partner, it's in big time trouble. And you know how you can tell? They tell counselors to do this by the rolling of the eyes. You ever practice rolling of the eyes? Do it right now. Because you see when Nathaniel says, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's just not saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? No. He's in full eye roll mode. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, from that town, right? Well, eye rolling shows contempt. And it will kill a marriage if you become contemptuous towards your spouse, dismissive, and it will kill you from discovering faith if you fall into contempt for the faith. Don't go there. Be mindful that prejudice and contempt can come to us. And if it's not for you, think about your friend. It does not do any good to try to communicate or dialogue with somebody about the faith if they are in a place of a contemptuous spirit towards the Christian faith. Sometimes I'll ask, you know, if I could prove to you that Jesus was God and that he rose from the dead, would that make any difference to you in your life or not? No? Okay. Well, when you get to a place where you're willing to put all the cards on the table and objectively look at things and see what God maybe would have for you if he does exist, then let's get together and connect. But if you're in that skeptic mode that's dismissive, and the sad thing about it being dismissive is because it locks you out from discovery, from problem solving, from creativity. And it's not only, like I mentioned there, with the faith, but also in something like a marriage. You know, it's interesting with the whole, I, I guess the Clippers won last night, right? Yeah, the Pacers won too. I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> um, Clippers won a hard-fought seven-game series, but I tell you, that's not been the news of the Clippers, has it? It's been the news of uh, their owner and uh, being called a racist because of actual statements that he made. And, you know, you sit there and for whatever reason, that whole dialogue and the issue and the ups and downs of it, you, you do. You have to question yourself. What happens in the hearts of individuals? In my heart, it causes me to be prejudiced, not towards just people sometimes, but prejudiced towards belief and truth. Sometimes I think it's fear. I don't want to know the truth. Other times, it's probably just ignorance. Alright? A lot of times, I see it comes down to the volitional thing. of If this truth is true, then it's going to require change of me. But Nathaniel wasn't a bad person, as we see later on here with what Jesus says to him. But you have to capture that first part of a skeptic and do not be dismissive. Do not be dismissive of God and the Christian faith in your own life, and encourage your friends in the same kind of measure. One aspect on the heels of this is that when you also become dismissive of Christianity, you're becoming dismissive of a lot of the core values you probably stand for. We don't realize this, but if you were to study history, you go back and study sociology, I guess, as well, and what was going on in the early years, 
uh, of our world and other different seasons. Things that the Christian faith stands for used to not be a part of the culture. All right? Things that, like, you are to love your enemies. Do you know that sounds nice to us today? And we say, of course you're supposed to love your enemies. But that used to be a ludicrous thought. Because you always step on your enemies. It's always, you know, the strongest who win. The weaklings can't survive. So, loving your enemies. Taking care of the poor. That everybody has human value and dignity. These things come from the gospel of Jesus Christ Christianity. Because a world left into itself does not migrate, does not move in that direction. I want to encourage us that if you're going to be dismissive or encourage somebody who's trying to be dismissive of the Christian faith, they should not overlook it, one, because of it keeps them from problem-solving, creativity, and really discovery. But the other thing is they're undercutting the very foundation by which they say, oftentimes, that the world should operate and exist in. The essence of what makes Christianity different from every other form of thought is this. Every other religion tries to get you to find God, to be able to improve yourself, to have a higher consciousness, to connect with the divine, however you would define that. But Christianity comes and it says, you know, you can do all that and you can fall short because there is no ability to become fully alive spiritually and understand truth unless you find the one in whom truth abides. And in that truth is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And in that, then, are all these core values of things that we perceive are necessarily helpful and viable in living life. Second thing with Nathaniel. Nathaniel said, Can anything good thing come of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. All right, here's, here's a question. You probably didn't look at it here. The skeptic, rolling eyes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Goes and checks it out. He goes and checks it out. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him. All right. Let me go see him. I'll shoot it down. You know, many times as a skeptic, underneath, there really is a deep, deep searching going on. Don't ever be... Uh, I, don't ever feel intimidated by a skeptic. Because sometimes I think maybe the skeptic is like a Nathaniel. And underneath, there's a covert seeking going on. Nathaniel was a Jew. At this time, you've got to remember the years of silence. They're like, well, does God still love us? Are we still his chosen people? Does he still have a plan for us? Should I be looking for a Messiah or not? All these are the kinds of questions that are going on with Nathaniel, and so when the idea of Jesus pops up, it's like, oh, can anything good come from Nazareth? I don't know about that. But then it's like, wait a second. I go check it out. I go check it out. Skeptics oftentimes are covert seekers. And what you're going to do is you're going to do the very same thing that Nathaniel did. You're just going to simply say, 
I don't have all the answers to the big questions, but I know someone who does. Now, what's interesting, it's not only here with Nathaniel, but can you also go back when um, Peter is called and that kind of thing, is there was not a big-time apologetical defense. Like, well, listen, let me show you why you should come see Jesus. Uh, because he was uh, from Nazareth, yes, but, uh, but that was also in Scripture, so it could be that he was a fulfillment of the prophecy. And there's some other rhyme and reason why maybe he could be a Messiah. The people did not, in this particular conversation, this encounter, get into apologetics and trying to win the argument and frame things up. They simply got them to go see Jesus. Go see Jesus. Because it's in Jesus, if he's the answer, then he has a answer to those questions. And many times, I believe, with skeptics, we allow too much time to exist between fending off their questions, giving rhyme and reason to something, and we just need to get them into, I believe, the Scriptures, studying the life of Jesus, knowing about Jesus, and encounter through the Spirit of Jesus can interact with individuals that they're sincerely seeking to those who seek me with all their heart, they will find me is there is something supernatural about just getting the skeptic to Jesus, even the skeptical aspects of our life to Jesus. Because there's this covert seeking that's going on a lot of times, and we do not realize all that's happening with people. You know, there's um, a book written by Tim Keller, which uh, some of the framework of of even my thoughts today uh, come from. And Tim Keller writes about these encounters with Jesus. And he talks about students today wrestle with different forms of big questions in life. But many of them are unsatisfied with the answers that they have gotten in their respective schools, right? And they may, like Nathaniel, quietly begin to investigate. And he gives an example of this. I want to give you this example, if you'll hang with me on it. He says this, a classic example of this move of someone becoming who was a skeptic and becoming a seeker and becoming a follower of Jesus, occurred in the life of the famous poet W.H. Auden, who moved to Manhattan in 1939. By the time he, this time he was a great writer, and he abandoned his childhood faith that came from the Church of England, as had most of his friends in the British intellectual classes. But after World War II broke out, He changed his mind and he embraced the truth of Christianity and shocked many by going back to the church. What happened? In his encounter of his spiritual renewal, he observed that the novelty and shock of the Nazis in the 1940s was that they made, listen to this, the Nazis made no pretense of believing in justice and liberty for all. They attacked Christianity on the grounds that, quote, to love one's neighbor as oneself was a command fit only for effeminate weaklings. Moreover, the utter denial of everything liberalism ever stood for was arousing wild enthusiasm not in some barbaric land, but in one of the most highly educated countries in Europe. In light of all this, Auden did not believe that he could any longer assume that the values of liberalism, by which he meant freedom, reason, democracy, and the human dignity, was self-evident. What's going on, he's saying? These are the smart people in the world. And the smart people are slaughtering people. Where does this evil come from? There was something inside him that said there is evil in this. But yet these seemingly intelligent, seasoned, all right, competent people in life were dismissive 
dismissive that loving one's neighbor was something of a high value. Isn't that ingrained in all of us? In light of all this, he said this. If I am convinced, this is all, that the highly educated Nazis are wrong and that we highly educated English are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? The English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against the evil incarnated in Hitler have no heaven to cry to. The whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine faith in the absolute. It has tried to make reason the judge, but since life is a changing process, the attempt to find human space for keeping a promise leads to the inevitable conclusion that I can break it whenever I feel it convenient. Either we serve the unconditional or some Hitlerian monster will supply an iron convention to do evil by. You see, Christianity, for this author and poet who was raised in the church, was from Nazareth. Anything good come from that? I did that when I was younger. But then as he got older, skeptic, began to lay down his presuppositions, his dismissiveness. He moved away from that attitude. And he began to think through. He believed in human rights, in liberty and freedom. But why did he believe in them? The operational principle of the natural world is that the strong eat the weak. So if it's the natural who for the strong for so if it's natural for the strong to eat the weak, and if we just go here, got here only through the natural, unguided process of evolution, why do we suddenly turn around when the strong nations start to eat the weak nations and say that is wrong? On what basis can we do that? On what basis can we say that the genocide in the Sudan, where a strong ethnic group eats the weak ones, is wrong? If there is no God, then my views of justice are just my opinion. So how can they be, how can we denounce the Nazis? Alden realized that unless there was a God, he had no right to tell anybody else that his feelings or ideas were more valid than their feelings or ideas. He saw that unless there was a God, all the values we cherish are imaginary. And because he was sure they were not imaginary, the genocide was indeed absolute, that genocide indeed was absolutely wrong he concluded that there must be a God. Actually, what he's referring to here is one of the five major arguments for the existence of God. It's the moral law argument. Is that if we believe that there's right and wrong, that there's a moral law, then we have to believe that there's a moral law giver, one who writes that on our hearts as to what is right and wrong. If you don't believe in God, then you may say, well, a moral code is appropriate for our culture because it helps the largest number of people exist. That's true, but you can't say that that's an absolute. So whether it's the Nazis or people in the Sudan, then you can't blame them for what's happening. Here's the reality. You may think you're supposed to love your neighbor. In other countries, sometimes, and in, in other faraway places, they used to think that eating your neighbors was appropriate. How do you determine what's right and what's wrong unless there is a higher moral law, unless there is a higher moral law giver in God? And so I'm saying, hey, I'm stepping back. Let me observe this. Sophisticated people don't naturally grow into greater sophistication as it relates to being moral beings. So a skeptic, don't let them be dismissive. Encourage them to take that latent seeking of their heart and bring those questions out in the open. Bring those questions before God if He exists and see how those questions might be answered before Him. And so now here's the key for where do you go to with your big questions. 
the simple statement to Nathaniel was, come and see. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus answered, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. There is no deceit. There is no guile. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't know about you, but that was an awful quick turnaround for a skeptic. Don't you think? There was something, I believe, of a supernatural nature going on in the spiritual realm where God calls people to himself and they felt something from the very essence of being with the man, the son of man, God. And Nathaniel believed in God. He was a skeptic concerning who the Messiah would be. Remember, they thought the Messiah needed to get the Romans' boot off of their heads. Jesus says, no. That wouldn't solve anything concerning human evil. That's why I believe he says, and I think he has to say it with a smile. I, you know, and by the way, it's recorded. We don't know what he was doing underneath the fig tree. All right? That's not recorded anywhere else. It's another good example of why the Scriptures is true because you just don't do that if you're building fiction. Fiction, you're always including things that are going to go somewhere, but we never find out where the whole idea of him uh, sitting under the fig tree and what he was doing. But whatever it was, Nathaniel knew what he was doing. He knew Jesus knew what he was doing, and he accepted him at that. And he said, this person, there's nothing false. This is a true Israelite. And so he says, this man knows me through and through. He sees things that maybe... I don't even know about myself. He comes to him and somehow he begins to embracing, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus with a smile says, Really? Really? Don't be so quick to do that. Now, not that he wasn't claiming to be that, but he's like, All right, let's think through this. And then he's like, You've got to realize I'm not who maybe you think that I am fully. I'm not coming to, to boot the Romans out of here. But I am coming to do something far greater. And that is to destroy evil, to establish the opportunity for change to be happening throughout all of the world and into eternity. And then he gives this analogy or this reference to, he says, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you know where another place in Scripture that occurs? He's referencing back to Jacob. When Jacob had a dream and he fell asleep and he saw this ladder that existed between the heavenly realms and then the earthly realms. And at that time, true of today, still there's a slab that exists between the heavens and the, um, the earthly realm. And so the dream was seeing the angels ascending and descending on this ladder, which means there's a connectedness between these two worlds. He says, truly, you shall see greater things than these. You're going to see that I am connecting all the heavenly to the earth, that I'm transforming things. Don't always be so quick to be dismissive as a skeptic, and then always make sure that you're just not so quick to chuck everything else and not continue to stay with your mind and your thoughts. 
there is some place for a healthy skepticism. You just don't want that skepticism to fall into cynicism. But as a skeptic, you will find that the answers you're looking for are found in Jesus Christ. And so the story begins to unfold as you work through John. Where do you go to for the big questions in life? Come. Come and see. Can you imagine those three years where they sat and they listened to the one who spoke with authority? The one who had life. The one who was the Logos. Incarnated in the flesh. Whether you're a skeptic this morning or you're wrestling with how to give encouragement to a skeptic in your life, take them to the Logos. Take them to Jesus. You do that in a couple ways. One is, yes, you want to take them to the Scripture and encourage them to read the life of Jesus and the encounter Jesus had with people. Another is you begin to ask them to just to pray for Jesus to reveal themselves to them, if He exists. But one of the most powerful ways is that this Jesus, God Himself who became flesh, now dwells in you as a believer. And you are the representation of the life of Jesus. Marred and sinful as we are, in Christ we are His presence to a lost and dying world. Come and see. Come and see the One who has the answers to life. Come and see the One who has life himself. Let's pray. Lord, I ask today that you would help us to never shy away from the hard questions of life, even dealing rightfully with our own skepticism. For Lord, you became the master teacher, not only of the disciples as we see it recorded in this Gospel of John. But you have become the master teacher of those of us who seek to follow you today. And Lord, even in this room, if there's those who have never chosen to follow you, Lord, may your voice speak to them even in these moments to say, come and see. Check it out. Lord, I ask that you would help us as seekers and as followers know that You are the truth and that the truth will truly set us free in all ways. So Lord, may we leave today confident of knowing that our faith is not merely based upon an experience or that it's helpful in our own life, but that we have a faith that's based upon truth and that, that we would live from the source of that strength in our everyday life and not be ashamed of You and your ways. Lord, you call people to yourself. You called them not to just know you in name or to know you by actions and deeds. You called them to know you in an intimate, loving way. And so, Lord, I pray as we would just close here this morning. If you are speaking to individuals who are skeptics that maybe never crossed that line of faith, that you would reveal to them that you love them, 
and you want them in a loving relationship with you. Lord, we are so grateful for that, that we can sing of your love and know that all you did for us was done because of not an obligation, but because of a desire to reach out to us. For all the other religions of the world to say, do better, seek more things, become smarter, tap into some spiritual subconsciousness, Lord, I am so grateful that it's not about what we have to do, but it's about what you have done. What you've done for us on the cross, through the power of the resurrection, and through the years. And that was something you took on your own initiative. You came to this earth. You were obedient to the Father's will. And you are even in this moment reaching out to call people to yourself, even in this room. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we ask, we ask that you become more real in our life as we embrace you. I just want to encourage with head bowed and eyes closed if there's anyone who's ever felt the tug of God on their heart before that never has responded to that tug that you can respond by just simply asking of him to reveal himself to you more and more and that you would surrender to him your life so we're going to sing this song in conclusion and may the Lord of heaven just continue to minister his grace and his power and his conversation with you And may you come into an ever-deepening understanding and knowing of who He is with your mind. But that you would not only love Him with all of your mind, but all your heart and your soul and your strength as well. Because it really does come down to that volitional place of just surrendering your life. So I invite you to do that. And uh, as the team sings, Yeshua is going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offering as well as your communication card. But on the communication card is a place for you to mark, I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus. And we'd be more than glad to help you discover the one who was and is and is to come. Amen. Let's sing together.